And so let's pray before we jump in. God, uh, we're just thankful to be here and to be in your word and to um, have the opportunity to meet with one another and to meet with you. We're just thankful for who you are and that you love us and that you call us and that if we would respond, you offer us life. And so this morning, Lord, as we dive into your text, God, would you just bring to life the words on these pages? Would you give us um, just fresh eyes and open hearts to hear from you? Would words that are familiar take new life? And would words that are brand new um, lead us to life in your name? We love you and we praise you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So John chapter 6. Is this louder than it should be? Am I louder than I should be? Don't answer that. <laughs> Tim Matson, don't answer that. All right. So, uh, John chapter 6. So last week, Kenny spoke, and we looked at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, we're going to jump to the end of that story, because what's going to happen in what we're looking at today is that the crowd is going to follow Jesus, and Jesus is going to explain what we discussed last week. Um, so, John chapter 6, verse 14. Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000. He takes this little bit of bread, and he feeds all of the people with it. And so when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and make him, and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So at the end of the story, we see that, the, that Jesus performs this miracle. He feeds all of the people. The crowd responds by recognizing that there is something powerful going on here and wanting to make him king, wanting to take and make him king. So we come to verse 16. Uh, which is going to be the start of our passage today. We have a lot of text today. Thanks, Kenny, for that little gift of a lot of text and a little bit of time. So if you feel like we're buzzing through, I apologize. You can read it on your own and get more out of it. Okay, verse 16. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him to the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. The disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. All right. So we know from uh, verse 6 that we looked at last week that it was Passover time. So Passover time, if you're unfamiliar, it was a time when the Jewish people would get together and they would celebrate and remember how God rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt <coughs> and freed them as a nation under the leadership of Moses. So for the Jewish people, this marks a time when they were enslaved they were no longer their own free nation. Well, they weren't a free nation yet. They were no longer their own people group. They were in slavery, and the Lord was going to lead them out of slavery and make them into a great nation and use the leadership of Moses to do this. So Passover time, they would celebrate this. They would reflect on this. They would remember how God had rescued them for slavery. So now, when Moses uh, had led them, he promised that God would send uh, the next prophet, the new prophet who was going to lead them and that they should listen to them. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, there's all sorts of messianic prophecy promising the Jewish people, a redeemer will come, someone will come and rescue you and lead you out of darkness. 
And so the Jewish people are always looking for this Messiah, this new Moses, someone who would come, free them from now Roman oppression, and restore the nation of Israel to its former glory in the the Davidic kingdom when David was king. So what John's going to do in this narrative is he is going to tell the story of what Jesus is doing, but in such a way that it would be obvious to the Jewish people that he is comparing Jesus with Moses. Jesus with Moses. So he's going to show how Jesus is greater than Moses um, while telling the story. So he does this through a couple different ways. Two stories, just to refresh our memory, we're not going to go all the way back in the Old Testament, but two stories to remember that John is going to parallel here uh, is going to be the Red Sea. Do you guys remember the story of the Red Sea? Even if you haven't been to church before, there's a good chance you know about God parting the Red Sea. Um, So in Exodus 14, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Pharaoh finally says, let them go after they've seen all of these miracles that God has done to to, uh, get freedom for the Israelites. They lead them out of Israel. Pharaoh changes his mind, and the Egyptians go after them to get them back. They want to get them back. And so they end up at the Red Sea. Egypt is coming, and the people freaking out, screaming, why did you just lead us out here to die? We have nowhere to go. There's a sea in front of us. And God replies in verse 21 to 22, and he tells Moses to stretch out his hand, and it says, in those verses, it says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right side and on their left side. So, sea, there's no way out of it, there's no way through it. God parts the sea, dry land, the people walk through it, walls of water on each side. Miracle? I mean, I'd be pretty impressed, but maybe we'll get there with you guys. Okay, so... Uh, then in this verse, all of a sudden we see, we see Jesus perform this miracle, and then there's this little transitional piece where we see Jesus walk on water. Also, big deal, I don't know. I have never done it myself, but Jesus does it. And so there is something that he's doing here. If we had more time, if this was a whole sermon just on this package, we'd unpack it a lot more. But it's intentional here. He's still drawing parallels with Moses. Whereas Moses was used as an instrument to do what God uh, had planned with parting the Red Sea and the people walk through on dry ground, as people do, Jesus instead has authority over the water. So he doesn't need God to part the sea so he can walk through like a human on dry ground. He does what only God can do and walks just right on top of the water over to the boat. Big deal. Big deal. I just don't have enough time to get into how big of a deal it is. It's so awesome. Okay, so in the midst of a mighty storm, it says they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Not just power given to him by God, but authority over nature. Authority over the elements. Second parallel, if you remember back with Moses, Exodus chapter 16. They get through the Red Sea, they're out in the wilderness, and now they're starving. They're starving. God, did you lead us into the wilderness to starve us? Moses, why did you bring us here? We were better off in Egypt when we had food. And so, of course, God, knowing what he's doing, says to Moses, Exodus 16, 4, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people should go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So God says he's going to rain down bread from heaven, and he does just that. This stuff called manna appears, and it tastes like honey, and it's this bread from heaven that covers the ground, and the people eat of it. This is what the people are going to eat for 40 years while they're in the wilderness. He provides for them. That is amazing. It's going to get more amazing, trust me. So in the miracle we looked at last week, Jesus feeds the 5,000, maybe more like 15,000 if you include women and children, by multiplying this bread. So for these Jewish people, for this Jewish audience who's watching this, they're waiting for a Messiah. They see this Jesus doing strange things, healing people, 
all of these hints at a Messiah, and they see he multiplies bread and he feeds all of these people. Jewish expectation of the Messiah, one of the expectations was was that that he would perform miracles. Okay? Let me just preface this with, we're going to do a little Jewish expectation here because you have to understand it what they would have understood, not just what we see. Because it makes a difference in how we understand and interpret it. So the Messiah would perform miracles. Overall, of messianic prophecy is the idea that he would perform miraculous acts. This Messiah that's going to come. Um, and we know that they viewed the, the miracle as messianic because of their response. They wanted to take and make him king. They were ready. They were convinced. They were sold. They're like, let's make this guy king. So it, later on, we'll see in John 6.30, they say to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They want confirmation that he's the Messiah. And so how do they want confirmation? Through miraculous acts. They're looking for miracles. Second point, Messiah would also provide new manna. We know from ancient Jewish literature that the, in the Jewish uh, understanding, there was this storehouse or this treasury in heaven. And that during the time in the wilderness, God opened this treasury to feed the people. The Israelites had been fed with this bread from heaven. There was an understanding and an expectation that when the Messiah comes, this storehouse would be reopened. Uh, There's an early Jewish commentator, and he commented on actually this Exodus passage, saying, as the first redeemer caused manna to descend, so will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend. So there's this idea that they're waiting for this, this new Moses, who's going to come with power and miracles, who's going to provide this new manna. And here comes this Jesus, performing miracles, multiplying bread, feeding all of these people with this bread seemingly from nowhere. You have to understand that as a Jewish audience, your ears are perked. You're listening. For us, we're like, wow, that's crazy. He fed all these people. He cares about lunch. It's a way bigger deal to the Jewish audience. I'm super glad that he cares about lunch because we're going to have some today, ladies. And you're all coming. I know you are. And maybe we'll need more food and we'll watch him multiply rice and it will be great. Um, Okay, so third thing is that there was an expectation that the Messiah would rescue Israel. So as I mentioned, uh, in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says to the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is what they are referring to in John 14, John 6, 14 that we looked at. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When they say this is the prophet, they're referring to this. They're saying, that guy that Moses talked about that's going to do what Moses did, this is the guy. So their understanding is he's performing miracles, he's multiplying bread and creating manna from nowhere that was a Jewish expectation, and so he is going to rescue Israel. Well, if any of you have been in the church for a while, we often talk about how this expectation of the Messiah, this rescuer, this redeemer of Israel, doesn't end up looking the way that the Jewish people expect. They expect some mighty king to come in power and in glory and, and knock out the Roman Empire and free the people of Israel, and they're going to be this dynasty again like they were in the time of David, and it's going to be glorious. And Jesus comes, and he teaches something so different. He comes as a servant And he comes to seek and save everybody. And we're going to take a look at that this morning. So now we'll carry on to the next part of our passage, 25, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, I went farther than I wanted to. That's okay. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. All right. So later in the chapter, for whatever reason, they tag it on at the end. We learn that Jesus was in the synagogue teaching at this time. Since it's Passover, what might they have been studying in the synagogue? Right. The Exodus. Perfect. You guys are great. Okay. So they were he's teaching in the synagogue. That what would have been being discussed is the idea of Passover. Is this Exodus from Israel? So everything is at the forefront of people's mind when they're looking for this new Moses. They're looking for this Messiah. They're talking about Passover. Jesus is doing these seemingly messianic things. They come to him and they say, you know, we were looking for you. And Jesus doesn't even say how he got there. He just goes straight into seeing right through them and addressing what's really going on. So there are two ways that they could have understood this miracle. And this applies to all of us. When we pray for something and we see God do it and we say, it was a miracle, or even just that God provided, God showed up, he did something. Um, there are two things that we can look at. We can look at, he did, he did the thing we wanted him to do. Thank God. And that, that is true oftentimes. They needed lunch. These people needed to eat. They were hungry. And Jesus cared and he fed them. Yes. But so often it stops there. It stops at how God meets our physical needs. And what Jesus is always doing is he's always trying to take people deeper. He's always trying to teach them more and more about who he is and the way that the kingdom works. Not just the material, the physical, answering prayers, doing miracles. And so he wants to elevate their understanding. Eyes off of the miracle, eyes on God. Eyes off of the provision, eyes on the provider. Eyes off of the blessing itself, and eyes on the one who blesses. So Jesus goes on to explain it. In his explanation, we saw that they expected miracles. Well, he is more than miracles. They're looking to the things that he did instead of who it is that did it. They saw the miracle, but they couldn't see what it signified. They saw that it meant power, and they associated power with this triumphant Messiah who was going to come in in power and glory. They didn't see that it meant authority. He wasn't just another Moses. He was God incarnate coming down to do something radically different and flip everything on its head. They saw that he might be the awaited prophet, but they didn't see that he was God. So, is he more than miracles for us? I hope so. How often is, is how we view God based on how we think he responds to our attempts to get to him? So I pray, and I pray, and I pray for something to happen, and it doesn't happen the way that I had prayed for. That's hard. It's hard. But he is more than the miracle. He is more than the things that he does. He is better than the manna. 
Jesus addresses it specifically. He says, it was God who sent the bread from heaven. So when we talk about the manna from the Old Testament, it was God who sent that bread. But then he makes the point, it is God who is sending right now the bread of life. I am better than the manna. They idolize this time of, which is funny because you read through the story of the Exodus, and they weren't happy, and they weren't praising God all the time. But later they'll look back at it as this time where God was, because God was in the middle of doing something. And so they look back at this manna, and it signifies God's provision and his uh, uh, um, preservation of this people. But Jesus is saying, this manna that you're looking for, it's me. It's not the bread that I just multiplied on the mountain. That bread is not the miracle. This bread is the miracle, right? So he is showing them that he is the manna from God's treasury for which Israel has been waiting. Number three, he will rescue the world. So the Jewish people, they expected the Messiah to come and rescue the nation of Israel. We see in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. All of a sudden it goes from being this localized group of people to being universal. Jesus comes and he's, he's telling the Jewish people and he's wanting them to get it and he's giving himself to them, but he's saying this is going to be for everybody. He's not just a carrier of revelation like Moses was. He is revelation. He's not just a mouthpiece for God as Moses was. He is God himself. So when we look at Jesus, when we look at what we expect him to be, what the Jewish people expected him to be, and then what he actually is, we see that he is trying to show us that he's so much more than we often think of him as. Yes, he is the one who provides the bread. But he is also the bread of life himself. Yes, he's the one that provides water. But he is the living water, like we saw with the woman at the well. Yes, he is the one who brings healing. But he is the remedy. Yes, he's the one that brings rescue. But he is the shelter. He is where the rescue is found. Yes, he is the one who redeems us but he is also the ransom himself. So he, it's this weird thing where he, the things that he does, yes, he's the one that does them, but he's also the thing. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? No, it's kind of complicated, but it's beautiful. Try, try sitting at home and not sleeping last night trying to figure out how to teach this in a way that, like, he's the, he's the thing, but he's also the giver of the thing. And then you just realize he's just, gee, it's, that's okay. He's just so, so good and so bigger than our boxes of, God, will you do this? And then he says yes or no, and then we just have to deal. He is life. So what does it mean that he's the bread of life? Gosh, could teach a whole series on this. I get three points <laughs> and a little bit more time. Okay, one, Jesus being the bread of life means that he gives life to the dead. So often um, we talk about Jesus being, um, Jesus coming and dying to save us from our sins, right? Yes, it's true. Thank God that that is true. Thank God it's true. He came and died so that we would be freed from our sin. But it doesn't end there. You're not just freed from your sin, and then you're you minus your sin. He gives you life. So we, scripture always talks about resurrection from dead to life. What is the difference between being alive and being dead? 
literally everything. Everything is different. If you have a person here that's dead and then you have a person here that's live, every single difference between the two people is, how do I end that sentence? Everything. It's everything. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. If you think that you are fine without Jesus, walking in your own way, in your own sin, you're dead. The Bible says you're dead. I believe the Bible, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying around the desires of the body of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are dead in our sins without Jesus. We are. We are people in need of life. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm it. I am the answer. For all of the broken and weary in the world, Jesus is the one that gives life. And so for those who don't know Jesus and are dead in our sins, Jesus comes and he offers himself to us as life. He gives life to the dead. So he saves us from the dead to life. And then once we're raised to life with him, he sustains us as our bread as our daily bread. He is our spiritual nourishment. Later on in John, in chapter 15, he's going to refer to himself as, as the vine and we're the branches, and he says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit unless, fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He is our spiritual nourishment. Philippians 4, 11 to 13 Paul, I love this verse. I feel like this is like my life right now. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is the secret? I can do all things through him, Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. Gosh, life is hard. And just because we've been given life and raised from the dead with Christ, we still have to do this life. And it's hard. It is hard, and we grow weary, and we stumble. But he is our spiritual nourishment. Paul says he has learned the secret of facing whatever happens. And that secret is found in Christ, in abiding in him. We can unpack that a million different ways, but what does it look like to find our spiritual nourishment in Christ? Gosh, if we think that we can just say yes to Jesus and then walk out the doors and and survive, the enemy is waiting to crush us. But we have this secret weapon through which we can do all things. You can survive all things with Jesus. Whatever you are facing right now, whatever season you are walking through, whatever stress, anxiety, whatever disappointment and loss, 
You are given freely the secret weapon, and that is Christ himself, and he gives himself abundantly to you as your life source. We get that nourishment through reading God's word. We started in John looking at Jesus is the word. He is the word of God. We meet with Jesus through God's word. The church is called what? The body of Christ. It's not just called the body of the church. It is the body of Christ. We meet with Jesus when we are in fellowship with one another, when we encourage each other. Through being here together, through serving and using the gifts, he is our spiritual nourishment. Staying in, um, abiding in him is how we survive. It's how we continue to grow. He is our daily bread. He is also the source of everlasting life. So he gives us life. He raises us from the dead, right? And we get life. And then he sustains us. And then at the end, at the culmination of all things, it doesn't just end. We get eternal life with him. He is the source of everlasting life. He doesn't just give us life now. He doesn't just say, choose me, believe in me, accept me into your life, ask me to enter into your life with you, and I will help you make a better life here on earth. Jesus did not come to make your life better. He came to give you life. It's not better with Jesus or less good without Jesus. It doesn't exist without Jesus. And it exists with Jesus. And it's not just for now. It is forever, for eternity. What God is doing now matters for eternity. The choices that you make now, they matter because for people of the light, this goes on and we get to be in glory in heaven with Jesus forever. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life through Jesus. John 11.25-26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks. 1 John 5, 11 to 13, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. If life is more than this 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and it goes on into eternity, does that change things? A lot. If there was nothing happening after I died, if I just, if it just turned black, and that was it, it was over, it doesn't matter much what I do here and now. But there is so much more going on. There is everlasting life given through Jesus. So the Jewish uh, crowd at the synagogue, they respond when Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. They say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So what must we do? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. 
That feels like a really simple answer. They say, what must we do? And he says, you must believe. Does that sound too easy? Are we getting off too easy? We must believe in him who he sent. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he is our daily bread? Do you believe that there is no life outside of Jesus? He says, believe. And then he says, come. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, believe in me, and then come to me. He doesn't say, go out there and clean yourself up and get better and stop doing this and start doing this, and then we'll talk about some life. He says, just believe in me and come to me. And I got you. You will survive. And you will live abundantly. Because I got you. Do you believe, but you need to come to Jesus? You need some life. We're going to invite the worship team back up. Number three. Live as people who are alive. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Are we people that are alive, have been made alive in Christ, but we're living like dead people? What is the difference between a dead person and a living person? Everything. Are you living like you're dead? Do you need some life breathed into you? Are you looking for that life to come from somewhere other than Jesus? Because you will be sorely disappointed. People spend their whole lives trying to have life breathed into them by the things of this world, only to be met with disappointment. I often, these days, when I teach, always my dad comes into the discussion. Because for me, it is how I am seeing God work in crazy ways. And so for those of you who don't know, my father is terminally ill, and he's on hospice. He has ALS, and um, he's going to be listening to this. So every time I tell him, hi, Dad. Um, but he, uh, he's dying. The difference between someone alive and someone in, that's dead is everything. His body is dying. My dad walked away from Jesus for most of his life. He was a pastor and a worship leader, and he walked away. And the enemy got him, and he wandered for years in the wilderness wandered and then he got sick and his eyes were opened and he realized life as he knew it was death it wasn't life he had been living in the sense that he was breathing and moving and going out and doing what he wanted to do but when his body when his mortality was put in front of his face he realized he hadn't been living 
What had he just done with the last several decades of his life? And so he started chasing after Jesus. I, I know very few people more alive than my father now. His body is dying. Everything is shutting down. And he is alive. And all he wants to do with this life that he's been given is go out into the world and tell a dying world that they are dying, but that Jesus brings resurrection and life. And God is being faithful. And people are coming to know Jesus and are getting life from a dying man. What do you believe life is? Is it about you leaving here and going to and from and going to your job and hanging out with your friends and working hard for money and spending it how you want and vacations and this and that? I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but what do you believe about what your life is? What is life? Apart from Jesus, it does not exist. It doesn't exist apart from Jesus. And so for you this morning, if you're like, I don't know this Jesus, but I'd really like to live, yes, I, I am with you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. You have an opportunity to be a new creation today. He doesn't wait for you to go clean yourself up. He says, I will give you life. Just come and believe, and it's yours. And what he does with a life surrendered is he brings life to the dead. That's it, plain and simple. I don't know how else to explain it. Do you need to make some changes and live as someone who's alive? I do. We all do. And Jesus says, just come and believe me. The passage ends in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus didn't just die to save you from sin. He died to change everything. He died to make all things new. He died to bring life. And the difference between death and life is everything. We're going to close in prayer. If you would bow your heads with me. I just want to pray for you this morning. If you are here and you don't know Jesus and you are thinking, I am dying and I need life, we want to pray for you. If you're here this morning, and you're thinking, gosh, I know Jesus, but I don't feel like I'm alive. I hear you on that. He is our daily bread. He is our sustenance. It means that we continually go to him, and he is the one that gives us life. So some of us just need fresh life breathed into us. Life has been hard, and we need fresh life breathed into us. I want to pray for you this morning. And I also want to let you know that when we worship, there's going to be people over here on my right that want to pray for you. 
And just know that as you're sitting in your seat, whatever the Lord is stirring up in you, the enemy wants to keep you glued to that seat because prayer brings freedom. And so I would tell you, if you feel your butt stuck to that seat, get up and go get prayed for. Come find Pastor Kenny at the front. I'll be over here as well. We would love to pray for you. Father God, we, gosh, we're just so humbled, Lord, that you give life and that without you, we've got nothing. And with you, we literally have the difference between death and life. We have everything in you. And God, we just repent corporately for being a people who thinks that we have it together and that we can try in our own strength to give ourselves life. But we are running on empty most of the time. We need the giver of life to breathe fresh life into us. So if you don't know Jesus this morning and you want life, let me pray with you. You can just pray this to yourself. God, I recognize that I am dying and that I need you. And I might not know what all of that means, but I know that you are the difference between death and life. I believe. And I come to you and I give you my life. And I ask that you would show me your glory. If you just need a fresh filling of the Lord this morning, let me pray for you. God, I am with these people in that life is hard, and without you, I wither. But you are the giver of life, and you give freely. God, would you breathe fresh life into us this morning? Would you breathe fresh life into your people through the power of your Holy Spirit, and would you unleash us into this world to bring life to a dying world? Would these things not just be words on pages, but would they be what moves and, and makes us and what leads our day and our week and our month and our life? Would we leave here and be men and women who are alive? And would you tether us to you? We love you and we praise you. And we thank you for all that you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.